Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I have often said that being a post-producer is one of the most thankless jobs in Hollywood. They are tasked with pleasing seemingly opposing forces, meaning the studios, the networks, and the showrunners, but then they also have to manage a team of editors and assistants, and they have to make sure that the show gets finished on budget and on time. Having a good post-producer that not only knows how to keep the trains running on time, but also foster a creative and collaborative environment where everyone performs their best and enjoys life outside of work, well, that is a winning combination that is far too rare in our industry. Today's guest, Paul Leonard, is one of those rare species of producers that has both editors and showrunners alike wanting to work with him again and again. Paul has worked in television post-production for 23 years, and he's probably best known for co-producing Battlestar Galactica, which earned 15 Emmy nominations and three collective wins. He recently wrapped up a job at Marvel, where he was one of the vice presidents of TV post-production before he decided to go back to freelance producing. Paul is a fountain of knowledge and wisdom, with countless ideas about how to lead successful post-teams. He also has a wealth of war stories about managing demanding executive producers. In today's conversation, Paul candidly shares his thoughts on what gets editors and AEs hired and what qualities he likes his editors to possess in the edit bay. He combines a winning charm with a no BS approach that has earned him the well-deserved reputation for making great shows while also keeping his team happy and sane. And yes, it is possible, but it does take effort. This is a rare insider baseball conversation that is going to be valuable to anyone who wants to get the unique perspective of a post-producer who's in charge of hiring, delivering a high-quality creative product, and also getting maximum creativity out of his team while also promoting a well-balanced collaborative team environment. All right, without further ado, my conversation with producer Paul Leonard. 
I'm here today with Paul Leonard, who has been a freelance post producer for over 20 years now. Most recently, you were the vice president of TV Post for Marvel, and you are probably best known for co-producing Battlestar Galactica, a show that TV Guide and Time Magazine both called the best show on television, which earned 15 Emmy nominations, which included the following post categories, editing, sound editing, visual effects, sound mixing, and you had three collective wins. So it certainly sounds like, Paul, you have been around the block or two in the world of post-production. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you, Zach. It's my pleasure. Well, I'm looking forward to this because I have spent many years talking to a lot of creative professionals, mostly editors and assistant editors, and I'm really interested to start bringing more of the producer point of view into this conversation. I have spent the last several years trying to really help people understand that putting our needs and our well-being and our mental health and our sanity first and the way we treat each other and the way we work together is ultimately what's going to get us the best product, not just being these drones at our workstations that put in 80, 90, 100 hours a week. And through the grapevine, through one of my contacts that's worked with you uh, for many years, she said, you have got to talk to Paul. I think you're going to have a lot that you're going to have to talk about. So I'm super excited about that, and we can talk shop, and we can talk politics ad nauseum. But before we do that, I'd like to get to know a little bit more about you and your own journey. So I know that you are in the the producing world now, and you have been for most of your career, but as I understand it, you've also done a fair amount of editing yourself, especially in your earlier days, and you're a bit of an editing nerd, just like us. Would that, oh, would that be the case? Uh, a little bit. I, uh, you know, I loved editing in high school. I had some VHS decks, one with a flying a race head and things like that, and used to play and make videos with friends. Then I got into undergrad film school at the University of Texas in Austin and uh, edited my projects and other people's projects as well and really would get lost in it. You know, like, oh, goodness, it's 5 a.m. I've been doing this for 12 hours or something like that. And then I went to USC to get my master's in a producing program, which honestly I had mixed feelings about. I'm grateful that it coaxed me into packing my bags and convincing my fiance to move to Los Angeles. But ultimately, after two years in an MFA from USC, I found myself temping to pay the bills and trying to figure out how to make a career for myself in the entertainment industry. So... I do want to add one thing uh, quickly, which is um, I wasn't the vice president of TV Post Marvel. I was a vice president. The other was Paul Gadd. Paul Gadd was there a good year before me, and we shared responsibilities, and I looked to Paul as a mentor and a peer, and he's fabulous. Which is interesting because as we talked about right before we started recording, I see Paul Gadd as a mentor as well. He's one of yeah. the very first people I reached out to early in my career and had a chance to visit the 24 post facilities and chat with him and have kept in touch ever since. And it's it's a very, very small world we live in, which is why it's so important to be nice, right? I completely agree. Don't burn bridges. Don't uh, badmouth anybody. Um, you know, at the same time, and I, I mean, I have, you were talking about creating a sane work environment. Um, it's something I think you learn along the way. And when I first fell into post dating myself back in 96 on a show called Sliders, uh, produced by Universal for Fox, within a few months, I found myself working six and seven day weeks as the post coordinator. And my wife said, what are you doing? Like, this, this is insane. And I actually went to my boss, the AP, and said, I don't want to do this. And, you know, he he talked me into sticking around. There's a certain thrill about, you know, putting the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle in and getting it in just under the wire. But it can also be stressful and terrifying. But I don't like watching that punish other people. 
And uh, I saw a number of casualties early in my career uh, on a non-union show with kind of an angry showrunner who liked to fire people. And then, you know, one of my biggest credits working for several years on a show with two executive producers who didn't like to come to the cutting room, but rather would send us volleys of email notes, sometimes a day or a week later than we expected. And so it became a hurry up and wait situation and lots of long hours and poor assistant editors who were making outputs every night at midnight at 1 a.m. And it was kind of terrible. And I, uh, at some point, I finally kind of circled the wagons and I, I pleaded to the studio for help in managing the EPs on that show. Uh, it was one in particular, and they weren't very effective. And it took me a few years to look back on that and understand that the executive in charge from the studio point of view was actually someone looking to that same executive producer for employment. So he, he wouldn't discipline that EP. But I, but I did my best to, to say, look, we're not doing this or we're going home or I, in some regards, uh, waiting on notes from that particular individual, I would make my own notes. And I sent those to him and said, you know, if I don't hear from you tomorrow, these are the notes that I plan to execute with this editor. And it would anger him and provoke him. He would usually embrace three quarters of my notes, perhaps out of laziness. And then throw in his own 20% and say, okay, you know, let me see this tomorrow night. But it was just to kind of, we got to keep this thing rolling. And this is a show that had, you know, 100 to 200 visual effects shots an episode. So we had to make a lot of decisions early in the process in order not to destroy those artists' lives. At some point early in this program, we built our own VFX shop. And, uh, and so I was signing time cards for artists, sometimes up to 20 and 30 artists a week. And you really had to be smart about keeping that assembly line primed and moving or uh, it would cost you a lot of money. So, and I'm, I'm not sure I answered your question about as far as telling you a little bit about myself. I, you know, film nerd, love editing. You know, uh, I was a projectionist in high school. I worked at the first video rental store in Dallas, Texas when I was 14 years old. You know, I've always tried to get as close to entertainment as possible. And when I did start to, you know, had to force myself to pay the bills and, and pay off my student loans, I tempt and marketing and distribution and development and finally production landed at Stephen Bochco Productions for the first two seasons of NYPD Blue. I assisted the head of production there. And that's where I really started to get a good idea of everyone at work and what the responsibilities were and how a team made a show. And the post guys seemed to be having the most fun. So um, well, once I went to a mixed stage, I was like, wow, this, this, this is very exciting. How do we get closer to this? And it was probably six months later that I had a post coordinator job on sliders. So um, those post individuals who were at Botchko at the time were people that I still talk to and still trade emails with. And we still try to help each other find work, et cetera. So, so from that point, did you essentially go from the coordinator to the supervisor, to the associate producer, to the co-producer? What is it? Was it essentially climbing the, the proverbial ladder, so to speak? It, it was, it was, uh, you know, <clears throat> it was funny because I think Sliders was the perfect show for me to start on because it had a, uh, well, first it was, it was kind there wasn't, there wasn't much expectation put on it. Uh, it was 13 episodes for Fox it was the second season for the show. Oddly enough, it, it was a show that had a pilot in eight episodes and Fox canceled it. And then a year later, they decided that the show they replaced us with wasn't as performing as well as we did. So they went back to Universal Television and said, hey, can we put the show back together? And they put a couple of different exec producers on it. 
And one of them had a relationship with uh, the AP that I worked for. And, you know, someone I knew from Bochco said, hey, you need to meet my friend. He's looking for a coordinator. And I had breakfast with him at Jerry's famous deli in Studio City. And he said, well, the job starts Monday. Can you do it? And I was like, okay. And so, uh, but what was great was, you know, it was a steep learning curve. I mean, you learn really by mistakes. Um, But at the same time, it was kind of low and under the radar. So we could just get the show done and get it on the air. You know, I I made friends back then on that first season for me on that show that I still, I was able to employ one of them two years ago on a program I still keep in touch with. But at the same time, I think we got to the end of that 13. And I think the studio, to some regard, certainly my boss didn't think the show was coming back. So he took another job and moved on. And then all of a sudden Fox goes, we want 25 more of them. And the studio decided, hey, let's really put some money into the show. So let's move production from Vancouver to the Universal lot. So now we were all you know, together, production and post, which was more exciting experience. And so then my boss... Uh, you know, came to the show, sleeves rolled up, and I got a post-super bump. And at the end of that season, which was grueling, no kid, uh, you know, uh, I, we delivered some shows hours before they aired. Uh, it was terrifying in a way, and they were chock full of visual effects and complexities. At the end of that season, my boss went away, and then I, I actually stayed on as post-super and worked for another AP. And then the following season after that, I got bumped to AP, and. Um, and I was, you know, I never dreamt of looking for another show. I thought, why would I, as long as this stays on? Those last two seasons were for Sci-Fi Channel, so it was for a smaller budget. Fox canceled the show. But what I didn't realize, and this is something to talk about, was that I became known as the hour-long visual effects sci-fi guy. So I stayed in one place too long and was pigeonholed. So uh, even, even other shows produced by Universal at the time, like Law & Order, uh, wouldn't return my calls. And I learned it's because, oh, you're the sci-fi guy. Because so, clearly you wouldn't be able to lead and manage a team of creative professionals if there aren't science fiction storylines and visual effects involved, right? Impossible. <laughs> Impossible indeed. And, you know, I was, I was galled, honestly. It's like I can't supervise the mix of a courtroom drama or a police drama. Like we just mixed an episode in a day where an electrical storm slowly destroys the world that our heroes are on. And... Uh, so anyway, you know, it is what it is. I, you know, I, I tried to walk away from that. Um, and Sci-Fi Channel and Universal were the folks who kept offering me jobs. So I did that for a couple more years until the Battlestar Galactica pilot landed in my lap, which was very ambitious and expensive at that time, $15 million for a four-hour miniseries. And there was already a co-producer on the show who was uh, intimidated and wanted off the show and decided she had made a mistake and she started asking me for advice and then she started asking me to take her job. And I said, well, I think you're going to have to talk to the studio about this. I can't just take your job. And it turned into a phone interview and I was hired and that's where I uh, hung my hat for, you know, the, that pilot was probably a year and then four more seasons and then a season of Caprica and then another year on Blood and Chrome, which was like a backdoor two-hour prequel. It was insane. So if we're looking at that whole trajectory, what I'm really curious about is where you learn to be a good leader 
and a great team manager. You and I have never worked together before, but your reputation speaks for itself for the people that I have spoken with. You certainly would not be on this microphone if I didn't believe in your ability to properly manage a team, look out for the well-being of your workers, make it all about the project, but also have some semblance of I want to look out for everybody's welfare. What I want to dive a little bit deeper into is, is it the Peter Stark program? Is it on specific shows? Did you have a mentor? Where did you actually learn to be a team leader and manage people properly? You know, I'm a little embarrassed to admit it goes back to high school. I was uh, I was king of the band weenies uh, and I played saxophone quite seriously for about 10 years professionally for two of those. Thought I was going to major in music in college. And I was kind of talked into being the drum major of the high school band the last two years of high school. And it was, you know, it was kind of a bad news bear situation, like 35 musicians of varying degrees of talent. But uh, a new band director landed there who was a strict disciplinarian. And he scared off a couple of people. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, we can't afford to play with 32, let alone 35 people. I kind of became the good cop. And I think that's where I found that I, uh, I thrive, which is I could you know, I could essentially get on their side. I could look after these people. I could try to make them comfortable and also try to pull good work out of them and unify against essentially a common enemy, which at that time was the band director. He was a lovely man and he was great at what he did. He was just, he was just so hard on them. So um, the last year, my senior year, we became, it became the first year that our high school band went to state marching competition. And my high school had been open for over 50 years. Um, and that was really, it was just one of these team spirit, you know, kind of coming together and, and really achieving a goal. Um, and then in college, I helped uh, start a student-run television station and, uh, and thusly appointed myself station manager because I, I helped raise all this money and we essentially applied for and won an access cable allocation at the University of Texas, creating what's called Texas Student Television, which is still in the air in Austin or on the cable. And I, um, again, you know, working with dozens of people of all different backgrounds uh, towards a common goal, it became successful for me. And, and I, along the way, had decided that producing made better sense for me than directing. Uh, the directors, the budding directors that I met in undergrad film school uh, were more egotistical than myself. And they were so passionate about a particular vision, sometimes uncompromising. And I was always the cheerleader who kept people together. So I thought producing made better sense for myself. And that's why I applied to the Star program. But, you know, my first season in post, my, uh, the associate producer that I worked for had been doing that job for 20 years. And there was still, uh, I realized within a few months, quite a bit he didn't know about how to finish shows and get them on the air. And so he, rather than ask questions, um, he lashed out at people and blamed people and he had a temper. So I put his fist through some drywall, he would call people terrible names. He was hauled into anger management uh, by Universal at some point. And so again, it kind of became people calling me, uh, assistant editors, editors, VFX supervisors saying, we have a problem or we have to get this done in spite of your boss. Like, we need to break this to him or we need to work around him or we have to figure out how to manage him as well as get the show finished. So again, I became, I became good at that and certainly recognizing, I think, his blind spots and getting the job done. In a strange way, I have to say, I don't hate that individual because they gave me a career. 
Um, and I learned, I learned to do a lot. And he, he gave me a long leash and ultimately was grateful that I was picking up the pieces and getting the show finished. So, um, uh, so that's that. Now the season, he ended up getting replaced or he left the show and was replaced by somebody who was a micromanager who didn't let anybody do their job. So he had to put his finger in everything. And I went from supervising mixes as a coordinator, how strange is that, to only writing POs and schedule. Um, but never going home early, like staying until I had to be the last one out to turn off the lights. And nobody really enjoyed making that show uh, because they didn't feel like they had room to do their jobs or be trusted with some creative responsibility. So when I was given the opportunity, it was more of a reaction against my first two bosses. Like, how do I find that happy medium where people enjoy themselves, they can express themselves Early on, on a little show called The Invisible Man for Sci-Fi Channel in 2000, you know, I found myself talking to editors and assistant editors and post-supervisors about why isn't the show work better? You know, what are we missing? And it became this this, uh, kind of a sandbox approach to this open dialogue that loved the program, but was also very critical of it. And then I would approach the showrunner. Like, we had another idea. What if we did this? Or what if we aired episode six before four? What if we move this here? You know, this one editor had this great idea for a restructure. And surprisingly, I found uh, the showrunner, when he wasn't yelling at people, to be open-minded and say, well, let me see that. Or can you go make that version of it and show it to me? And, you know, I so I became a bit of a facilitator and an encourager. And found, and this certainly continued on to Battlestar to insane results. We had a situation, uh, the most insane story, I think, is that we had an episode, the editor's cut was supposed to be about 42 minutes long, and it was 78 minutes long. Now, we always had extras on that show because Edward James almost led a cast of uh, great pausers. You know, just like (laughs) Eddie would roll out a line. and. He was, he was awesome, and he had such gravitas and uh, really brought something to the show. But he and a number of other cast members started going off script and started introducing other ideas, and they were allowed to do so by the writers. As long as they said it once as scripted, they could play around a little bit. And so you ended up with these extras that conservatively were 10 minutes, but the most egregious 30 to 35 minutes of extra content. And I looked at the editor's cut. The the editor was wringing his hands, like, I'm not sure what we're going to do about this. My exec producers heard about it, and they started to go into flop sweats. This was season three. I watched the editor's cut, and I went to the editor. I said, you know, I think most of this is really good. Like, I don't think we should try to cut it. I think we should try to grow it and make it, you know, 84 minutes instead of 42 minutes. And so the director like gave notes remotely and didn't show up. And I was like, fine, take care of the director. And then let's take the long cut and let's go talk to the exec producers about making it a two-parter because there's places that don't quite make sense. And there's a scene from the previous episode that we cut that we could put in here. And so everybody started participating in this. And the non-writing EP on the show said, well, how would you structure it? what would you steal from the, uh, from the cutting room floor and how would you make that a second part? And we came up with questions that weren't answered and we said, we need one day of photography from first unit to pick up scenes that explain this, this, and this. 
And by then I had already called the line producer to say, well, we struck this set, we struck that set, but we do have the cave set. It's like, great. We need our heroes in the cave discussing strategy for how they're going to get off this planet and rebel against the Cylons. And so we literally kind of did a new story break and we took that to the non-writing EP. He took it to the writing showrunner, brilliant, Ron Moore. And then they pitched it to Sci-Fi Channel. Sci-Fi said, sounds great. And we got our one day of pickups and we made a second part. Part of the contingent was, let's put another 200 grand into visual effects. I was very close with the VFX supervisor, a brilliant artist named Gary Hutzel, who passed away a few years ago. And Gary said, well, here was the original intent and here was what was originally discussed, but never made it to script stage. Or here's why this was dropped. Or here's what that piece of footage is supposed to represent. And I was like, well, what would you need to tell that story? So by the time the Sci-Fi Channel conversation happened with our EPs, they said, here's what we need to make this happen. And we ended up saving the studio over a million dollars. And we created this second part to Exodus that I jokingly called Short Ends. And it was nominated for three Emmys, including Best Director. Oh my God, that's awesome. I and love it. Won, it. And it won for visual effects. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get for outside the box thinking. I love it. And, you know, and it, it, but I mean, it was it was a thrill to participate in because, you know, I, I mean, whenever I approach a show, a new show, a new job, you know, whenever there's an opportunity for a producer's cut on an episode, I always shot down my thoughts and I respectfully send an email to the showrunner and say, listen, this may be a bit, this may be above my pay grade or I may be crossing a line here, but I'd like to make some suggestions. If if you're open to it, I'd like to keep this dialogue open. I'm not looking to take credit. (laughs) Honestly, this may be the only time capsule version of that story of Battlestar that anyone will come to learn um, because it hasn't really been talked about. In all but one uh, season of a show, the producers have always been interested, willing. You know, that's not to say that I, that I don't stub a toe or someone doesn't at one point say, well, we're not even going to entertain that. I'm like, that's totally fine. There's no ego here. I'm just want to participate. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the Topo Mat. The Topo Mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a tilt 
diplomat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. And I think that that's relatively unusual. You may, maybe from your earlier part of your experience, you realize that that's not necessarily the norm, but at least my experience in television is that the and the terms are always kind of interchangeable, associate producer, co-producer. It's all, I've to this day, I still don't understand how all the credits work because it's, it's all over the place. But the person that runs the post-production department, we'll call them the co-producer. They just kind of have their lane. You make sure that you're taking care of the, the mix and the schedules and the budgets and whatnots. And, you know, the, the co-producer, oh, you're not going to give notes. Like we've, we have directors and writers and it's, it's unusual to work with a co-producer, at least in my experience, that has such a hand in the creative process. And the best producers that I've loved working with do. Because they can be in the room, they can serve as a de facto showrunner if the showrunner's in the middle of something else. And they'll say, you know what, let's let's workshop the scene. Let's see if we can get it even better before the producers come in. That to me is the collaborative process, as opposed to the way that I feel a lot of television specifically is structured, where the co-producer, I've always said it's the most thankless position in television because you have to serve and please everyone. You've got to deal with the editors and meet their needs, but then you have to make sure that you're meeting the assistant's needs. Then you have to make sure that you're dealing with the showrunners who's often in opposition to the directors in opposition to the studio executives. So talk to me a little bit about having to be in the middle of everyone's needs and finding a way to please everyone. Well, what I, it's important to me to communicate to the showrunner that I'm there to serve the show. And it's, it's you know, I think it's prevented me from getting jobs recently where I just came off an 18-month job as a VP for Marvel. So I think there becomes a question of who do you work for? Mm, now and now I, you're a studio guy, right? Now you're on the now you're on the the studio side. That's right. That's right. Yeah, can can I be trusted with the show? Can I keep secrets from the studio and network in order to get the show made the way the showrunner wants to make it? So it's important to me to communicate early on to the showrunner like, look, I'm privileged to work for you. I want to help you make the best show and realize the best show that we can together. So, you know, I've had, you know, for instance, I was dropped into a show. I had a, a very strange experience once I became the sci-fi guy where the president of uh, current programming uh, for Universal Cable Productions at the time, I guess it's Universal Content Productions, essentially put me under contract and to be like his fix-it guy. And so, like, we need to deploy you to this particular show. It started with a program that was three weeks away from air and nothing was completed. And Sci-Fi wanted to air 13 in a row. And it was a house on fire. And I, was, I said, I, I really don't want to do this. The vice president of Post at NBC Universal said, will you just go over there for two weeks and help out? And then once I got there, I realized, I don't, think, I don't think you guys are getting out of this alive. I don't think you can make these air dates. They go, well, actually, that's what we need you to do. And what I realized was, okay, it's like, if you compensate me and if we understand that I can't guarantee we're going to meet these deadlines, that I'm willing to try. But then I realized that the showrunner didn't want to return my phone calls because I became 
the network guy that was boots on the ground to get a show done. So I reached out to that individual a couple of times. And then I uh, recognized that everyone was upset about the first episode after the pilot. And it just so happened that my uh, favorite editor, I don't mind mentioning his name, Andy Seckler. I think he's brilliant. He, I, I actually met him as an assistant editor on The Invisible Man back in 2000 and thought he was the smartest guy in the show and said, I want to promote you to editor. And I did for that series. So I was able to give him his first editing job. And he was put on a week before I was, and he was trying to stop the bleeding and fix this first episode after the pilot. But um, we had this raft of network notes to try to address. And I was getting trying to get the showrunner in the room with us to talk about it. And uh, ultimately what happened was, Andy did the notes. He and I talked about them, what made sense, what didn't. And then we invited the three exec producers to the room to watch the cut. And I said, listen, if you're not comfortable with this version of the show, we're not sending it back to the network. Like, this is your show. You know, we want to help you make your show. We think some of these ideas are good. We think some of them don't quite work. We're going to show them to you and let's talk about it. And, you know, the showrunner took his, took his hat off literally at one point and put it over his face and kind of moaned, and he said, oh, God, it works better than I thought it would. Like, you know, it actually kind of works. <laughs> now, that particular showrunner got into uh, kind of a shoving match with the same executive that had dropped me on the show. And it had to do with a, a needle drop in an episode. It was the strangest thing, but it became this, like, bridge too far. And, you know, we got to the mixed playback stage and this executive was coming. And I said to the showrunner before he walked in, I was like, look, if you want me in your corner in this fight, I'll take it. But you have to tell me what you expect from me. Like, I could see this either way, but I work for you. I don't care how I got here. I care about the show and I work for you. So he, he actually said, I appreciate it. Don't worry about it. I'm going to drop the song. I was like, OK, great. So I was able to relax. By the way, that showrunner was fired a couple of weeks later. Uh, which was sad, but nonetheless, um, so I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to make a great show at the same time, you know, I realize that the hours that are required of the individuals, the editors, assistant editors, and the VFX editors, and the VFX supervisors becomes grueling and oftentimes unnecessarily so to create versions or let's experiment. It's like we're past that point of experimentation. Like we need to agree on a game plan and execute it. So I like to become, you know, one of the EPs on a show uh, nicknamed me Mother Hen in the context of this is no time for that Mother Hen shit. And that I felt, I felt terrible for these people who were putting in crazy long hours. Um, and we had a system that we went through uh, four or five assistant editors every season of Battlestar because the hours were just too ridiculous. And as much as I could try to help it, and we'd certainly pay them overtime, you know, uh, we just, that's how complicated the show was with exec producers who traded cuts. You get a cut, I get a cut, you get a cut, I get, I was like, we have to stop this. So, um, and it, it, no, you know, neither one of them was firmly in charge, you know? So that was, that was difficult. So through that, I certainly learned to, and honestly, when I get asked to work on a show, I often say, how many executive producers are there on the show and who's in charge? Do, does everyone else know that person's in charge? Because I've also been on shows where there was five executive producers and three of them were all told they were in charge. And, you know, it was like, this is absolute madness. And the time, the day that number three showed up and knocked on the door and said, now it's time for my pass. 
I, I was like, okay, can I get you some coffee? I made him comfortable. And then I went into my office and called the studio executive and I said, well, what is going on here? Like, this isn't what we agreed to. This isn't what you told me the job was. I'll indulge this person today and see what they have to offer. And then I'm going to choose a side. I'm going to tell the studio what that side is. And if they don't agree with me, I might've left the show, but they did agree with me. And I said, okay, now we need to enforce that. So I had to, I wrote that particular exec producer and copied everyone else, including the studio to say, you don't get your own pass and editorial on this program anymore. You have to send your notes to that person because you're out of sync with who we think is running the show. And we don't have the time or the resources to indulge your version of the show. I think some of your ideas are really smart. It's not in keeping with the vision of the show. That exec producer was outraged, as I would imagine. The studio executive told me they fell out of their chair laughing. And uh, we never saw that person again. They never even came to editorial after that. Now, by the way, I'll never work for that person again. That's okay. You know, I mean, I say that now, and yet I've been out of work all year. <laughs> but still, you know, I believe that life is too short to not enjoy the process and not enjoy the people that you're working with. Right. So you might be out of job, but you're also dodging a bullet working on a show that could be miserable with somebody that you just can't collaborate with. Exactly. So one thing that I'm really, really curious about, and this is something I've wondered for a long time. So you can tell me, having seen it from the inside as a producer, one place where you and I are very much in agreement, even though you're on the producing side, I'm on the editorial side. I always believe that our role is to serve the story. And as an editor, very similarly to you as a producer, I have to serve you, the producer, serve the showrunner, serve multiple showrunners. Then there's the director's cut. There are all these different viewpoints. And I feel like I'm there to be the shepherd. I'm trying to protect the bad ideas as much as possible. I'm trying to take all of the ideas and see how, how can I package all of this in a way that it still meets the schedule, but I can still play around and please as many people as possible without losing sense of the story. For you, it's very similar where you're managing some of the creative side, but more it's how do I manage all the expectations and still serve the story from a budgetary side, from a deadline side. It could be the best story in the world, but if it doesn't get on television, well, that's my fault, right? So that's challenging. There's a lot of things that need to be learned to do that as deftly as you do that. And what I've found, and there's actually been a lot of talk about this uh, just generally in the, the culture of the entertainment industry, frankly, worldwide, about how there's a lack of leadership training in film production and producing, where a lot of people will fall into it from one angle or another, and then they'll kind of learn on the job and learn from another person on the job. And as you climb the ladder, practice becomes permanent, but practice doesn't really become perfect because you're learning a lot of bad habits, and you're really more of a boss. My job is to make sure we meet the budget, the trains are running on time, and they all make it to the station on time, but there's a lack of actually prioritizing how do I become a leader? How do I better manage teams? And how do I really make sure to cultivate collaboration? And it sounds like you're very much on the other side of that, but have you also seen this culture of, I just need to get the job done. If people don't get it done, I'm just going to replace them with other people that do, as opposed to let's learn and grow as people together. Well, oh, there's a lot swimming through my head at the moment. I've certainly seen both approaches. And I've, I, I, was, I was on a program. Funny enough, I was hired because the showrunners, uh, it was a team, said, we love Battlestar. It's one of our favorite programs. If you're the guy who posted that show, we want you on this show. Well, no, longer, no sooner did I land on the show 
that I sent them my thoughts on the first producer's cut. And they kind of said, those aren't welcome here. And I said, well, you wanted the guy who posted Battlestar. This is how I did it. And I said, but if, if you're telling me you don't want me in the cutting room and you just want me to get the show made, um, I can do that. I'll help you make your show. I'll, you know, I'll provide for you in, in ways that I can. Well, no sooner did I step aside that I started getting emails and phone calls from editors saying, we're miserable. We hate their ideas. They're making the show worse. And then uh, it's literally, uh, I've become the, the EP's hands. Like I no longer have even a dialogue in how to, how to cut the show. I'm being told to cut there. Now cut to the close-up there. And they all found it very demeaning. And so we had 13 episodes to make with three editors. I believe by the time we finished number 13, we are on editor number eight because they all, they all started quitting. So once my inbox became full of complaints, I went back to the exec producers and I said, we think you're hurting your own show. We think, you know, uh, we think you, you reach a place of diminishing returns where you start tearing your show down. And the editors are not enjoying themselves. And they, they think there's a better version of the show that was, that was stuck on the drive. And uh, one of the EPs called me very upset. Like, how dare you speak to us like that? And I said, okay, it's fine. I'm just explaining to you that people are going to start quitting. And it's going to become more and more challenging to finish your season with tight deadlines. And that's what happened. Literally one editor one day said, I can't do it. Today's my last day. And the, the editor in the next room was like, he just quit? Well, I quit too. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to stay for this. <laughs> and I had to talk to my EPs to say, this is what I was trying to warn you against. And then guess what? Hey, assistant editors on the show. I started calling other editors, started pulling other editors. Do you want to come? This is what it's going to be like. You know, uh, yes, it'll pay well. Yes, I'll feed you lunch and perhaps dinner. If that's what's, you know, if those are the hours we end up keeping, I can't say that you'll, you'll love it, but we'll do the best we can. And, you know, as it turned out, uh, one assistant or two assistant editors both got opportunities to edit because we couldn't find editors to fill those chairs to get the shows done. So that was, that was not, you know, I confirmed that, well, I don't want to work for that team again. And, you know, they still get shows made and that's fine. And I went back to working. I should mention Kevin Murphy, an executive producer I've worked for on three different series, who is a lovely and very collaborative and open-minded, fun individual. Um, and he's just, he's just a wonderful boss. So I'm waiting for him to sell another show. <laughs> <laughs> I got a little off there, Zach, because I was just thinking of this one particular program that was just like, let's just burn through people to make our show and get it done. Well, what, what I'm so curious about is the way that our departments are structured and that they are just interchangeable parts. We're all here to just get the trains to the station on time within budget, as opposed to let's actually get the producer's leadership training. Like how many times have you gone to, to like some form of corporate leadership training or professional development that teaches you how to be a better team leader? Like, have you ever been offered that at any level in the filmmaking industry? No, an undergraduate college. Yes. Of course. But beyond and, and that, that there, there's no interest anywhere in developing talent so we can all learn how to be more collaborative, even though I'm sure you would probably agree your ability with Google Sheets is not why you get hired. I bet you're really good at budgets. 
I bet <laughs> right. all of the tools that you use, you're great with calendars, but that's not why you get hired. You're hired because you're so good at shepherding a team towards a unifying vision. But that's not taught. That's not a soft skill that's taught in our industry. And we, we become these interchangeable parts where it's just, well, everybody's miserable. Find somebody else that's willing to be miserable at this weekly rate just so we can get the train to the station. Well, I, gotta, I have to say, you know, it really comes from, it really comes from the head down. You know, uh, and so if an executive producer, you know, I literally had uh, one EP say to me, he'd rather be feared than respected. You know, I mean, there's there's all kinds of uh, personality disorders <laughs> in, in our business. And, you know, if you don't feel like you're allowed to, you know, it's also kind of of a divide and conquer mentality. You know, it's not it's not every showrunner that has opened ideas or contributions, you know, and you find this from the composer, from the music editor, from the mixers, from the colorist, from so many people who participate in making the show. If they're given an opportunity to tell you what they really think or to present another idea, you know, they get really invested and they get excited about participating in the show. So I found, because I love every step of the process, that when I ask those questions or I bounce my own ideas off of those individuals, they go, what about this instead? Um, I love that. And so my hope is to get that individual recognized for that contribution. Um, so when given the opportunity, I'll say, you know, the mixer had this other idea. Um, and so we also prepared this other version, or if you're interested, we could pursue that. And, you know, and then often, most, most often those people in charge will say, yeah, let's check that out. But at the same time, I think because there's so much content these days and a demand for so much content that a lot of people are being pushed into executive producer jobs that aren't qualified, that aren't ready for it, that are wildly insecure, who might be temperamental, who may, you know, avoid eye contact with post producers and editors. I mean, there's, there's just all kinds out there. So, you know, again, someone in my job, which I think is kind of a middle management job, might approach that individual with the same kind of, we have an idea, but I think more and more would probably expect to be shut down. Like, we're just not interested in that. You know, this is what we're going to do. So, I, you know, it's, so it's difficult. You really have to kind of read the room and test the waters and see what the boundaries are and above you, I think before you can pull everyone together. So, you know, it's tough, you know, I mean, because that executive producer, you know, may spend three to six days with an editor, 12 hour days at the same time, taking phone calls and eating lunches and dinners and whatever, you know, you get so involved in people's personal lives and other business that goes on. We have to, to some degree, take, take our marching orders from those people. And it's funny because one of one of my nightmarish executive producers uh, continues to work and went on to other programs. And at some point, um, the co-producer of one of his subsequent programs essentially approached me and said, I understand you worked for this gentleman for this many years. I said, yeah. And he goes, well, how in the world did you do it? And I said, well, I threatened to quit because, you know, season one of this particular program, I got to a place where it's like, there's no way. I can manage this program and sleep at night and provide any kind of sanity for my team as long as this particular individual keeps behaving like this. So 
I think this is like episode 10 of season one. I said to my wife, I think I'm going to get fired today because I'm going to, I'm going to go after this guy. And she said, please do. Let's just get it over with. And instead it turned into a funny relationship where he liked, he didn't mind being pushed back. He was a bully that liked to pick on people and he liked to scare people, but he actually enjoyed sparring with me. And once I realized that, then I was able to, 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 to take more care of people and to tell that person no. And so when this co-producer approached me years later and said, how did you manage him? And I said, well, I, I told him off and I was prepared to quit. And he just was horrified at that. Like it, it, it never entered his mind. Like that's not my relationship with him. I can never get away with that. And I would say, well, I didn't think I could either. You might surprise yourself, but I can't really encourage someone to jump off a cliff. It's just, that's what it came to for me, you know, where I was literally waking up in the middle of the night stressed out over this show. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core 360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Where I'd love to switch gears next knowing the amount of shows that you've worked on, the number of seasons and how collaborative you are with the creative process. I want to look at this from the perspective of the editor hoping to get the attention of either the co-producer or the showrunner that's saying, I want to work on this job. You've worked with a lot of editors in your career, I would presume. What is it that you're looking for when you want to hire an editor? Because it's not a simple process. You don't just say, well, qualified and avid, check. Oh, looks like you can do outputs, check. It's it's a lot more complicated than that. So if I'm interested in working on a show with you, or I want to get the attention of the showrunners or the executive producers, how do I do it as an editor? What are you guys looking for? Well, you know, oftentimes uh, the executive producer, uh, maybe in tandem with the studio, might say, here are uh, the kind of editors we're looking for based on credits. You know, we're making... Uh, a horror show with a sense of humor. We think it's like this, that, and the other. You know, so don't bring me a sitcom editor. Don't bring me a straight drama editor or a period piece editor. You know, again, it goes back to the pigeonhole. And so, you know, you kind of start by looking for editors who've worked on programs that your creative team aspires to make or 
you know, enjoys themselves. And then, you know, you end up with, you know, when, when I was doing this job with Paul Gadd at Marvel, you know, we might end up with a list of 30 editors based on credits and some referrals and diversity. You know, we're trying to build, you know, let's, let's get, you know, uh, a nice diverse group of people. And then you go to, uh, you know, the executive producer, as well as the executive, the creative executives at Marvel and say, who do we like? And they may say, let's meet with these 16 people, <laughs> you know, or these 15 people to hire three. So, you know, you've checked availabilities and things like that. And then you get these people in the room. And what I found, I joked at Marvel because I sat through so many meetings and interviews that I wanted to make a sign that said, stop talking. Because, <laughs> I, because I found more people, and this probably applies to myself as well. Maybe I recognize it in myself. More people would talk themselves out of a job. Like three minutes before the end of the interview, I really felt like they had the job. And then they would volunteer a little too much or say something ridiculous. And you could just feel the room go cold. And I was like, oh no, I can't believe it. And then after they left, somebody said, why did they say that? And it was, and it was, and that was terrible. But, you know, ideally, yeah, uh, what I try to encourage in the candidates that we would hire or look for and there were, sadly, there were a number of shows that we crewed up that never went into production. Marvel gets so excited that they would say, we're going to make this pilot. Absolutely. We're going to make it for ABC. And we would build a dream team. And then two weeks later, learn, oh, we're not making it after all. I was like, what are you talking about? And this happened several times at Marvel. So I went through this exercise quite a bit. Uh, but it would start with credits. And then, you know, you'd hope to bring in somebody who didn't, who had confidence some personality, not too much personality, not too talkative, not too many war stories, you know, and oftentimes the ones that I felt really struck a chord with the showrunner would say, you know, this script reminded me a little bit of Logan, you know, like they would, they would mention credits of, of films or TV shows that they seem to respond to, but they would explain thematically, it felt a little bit like this, where I could see this feeling or this tone or this look of the show. And oftentimes executive producers say, yes, I love that. You know, and, you know, it's a little bit of a risk because no creative wants to be told like, oh, I can see that you stole from Logan, you know, to make this pilot. But if you do it in a smart way to say, this reminds me a little bit. And if they kind of draw a blank, like I have no idea what you're talking about, then you don't spend too much time justifying it. But, um, but oftentimes, you know, when someone says, oh, they get it, that's exactly what I'm going for. Or I hadn't thought of that. Oh, that Alexander Payne film was really interesting and quirky in that way that doesn't always work. You know, so again, a little bit of personality, but not too much. And, you know, and then once you get on the job and keeping the job, I found much like what you said, I asked that editor to be a guardian of the cut because I've employed several times editors who will do anything you ask them to do. I don't want that, you know, because the editor will say, did it, it's better, did it, it's better. And it's like, is it really like, I need you to have an opinion of the show. What's the best thing for the show? And it, I don't care who gave the note, whether it's me or the showrunner. If you say, now, obviously, if it's a showrunner, you don't say that stinks. You could just say like, gosh, I kind of thought you had it better before. You know, you need to express it in a way that's not insulting to somebody giving a note. But I think it's important for an editor to have a point of view and to have a stake in the fight about what they think is best. Now, 
it may come down to studio or network notes, like we can't lock the picture unless we make this particular compromise. Again, this is where I love that part of the job. And that's something that oftentimes, and this happened on a number of sci-fi channel shows, where exec producers would be crestfallen when they read the network notes or the lock notes, like, I can't believe they want me to do this. And I would say, well, then let's not do that. Let's offer them this instead. You know, something that Andy Seckler used to say is, what's the note behind the note? You know, maybe they're bumping on it for this particular reason. This other note further down seems to add up to the previous note and they don't like this particular performance in the show or there's something that they're bumping on. So the showrunner loves that. If you can come to them and say, no, 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 let's not give them that. Let's not hurt the show. Let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let's offer them this instead. Then, and I love editors who do that. You know, we had reached a place on the pilot of The Sun for AMC. It was a Western starring Pierce Brosnan that I just loved. Where we just were hitting our head against a wall over some creative notes. One day, at like 10 a.m., the editor said, hey, come in here and take a look at this. I couldn't sleep last night, so I came in early this morning and I tried this version of the teaser. And they showed us this thing that was just like from another planet. And it was so cool. It's like we had all reached a place where we could not even imagine how to get past it. And they had totally cracked the safe. Now, sadly, it didn't go over with the network, but it did lead to another conversation that turned into a pickup scene where we kind of said, look, we don't think we can give you what you're asking for. The showrunner said, we had this particular idea in a previous draft. If we could restore that and pick it up, we can do it in two weeks. And that's what we ended up doing was some pickups for the pilot. And everyone agreed it made a better product. But I just idolized that editor who just didn't give up and just had another idea and another idea. And it wasn't exactly what you were expecting or not what you even asked for. Just really fascinating. Yeah, I was what I will tell other editors and is really one of the the secrets to how I'm able to maintain the relationships that I have and continue getting hired back is I will always question things that I don't think are going to make the show better, but I'm not going to say, no, I'm not doing that. That's dumb. I might have done that when I was 24, but I find that a lot of editors, even when they become more veteran, they get stuck in that being a bad habit. Well, nobody's seen the dailies more than I have. I know that won't work. Oh yeah. You know, that, oh, yeah. and that, that's an approach that I don't believe in, but I also believe in getting the results somebody wants, not necessarily doing it the way that they ask, because a lot of times they don't know how to ask for it and they don't even know what the result is they're looking for. But like you said, what's the note behind the note? Well, I think th- they want it to feel this way. They're not saying it, but I think they want it to feel this way. So let me do it a completely different way than the notes. And then they're like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. That, in my opinion, that's what helps you build these relationships, get in the room. And those are the kind of things that you would want to convey in a meeting to say, this is what I see my purpose is. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, that's really smart. I, you think you, you put it much better than I did. I think that's really perfect. So the next question is, we've talked about what it really means to be a great editor and a collaborative editor in this environment, how to stand out in the interview. But I think another question a lot of people are probably asking is if you have that list of 15, 25, 30 people that you're calling down for interviews, how do I even get on that list? Place like Marvel, it just seems like it has these giant walls made of steel and cement. How do I ever get in the door? How do you get those 30 resumes and get those 15 interviews? How do people get in this world if they're looking at it from the outside? Well, they have to, I guess they have to network and find somebody who's on the inside, whether that's an assistant to an executive or 
you know, a writer's assistant or they learn about this show that's going to develop that they love. I mean, you know, there's, I, I can't, I can't comment so much on what it, you know, I honestly, I felt like I was on the outside of Marvel, even to a large degree once I was there. <laughs> so, you know, but I will say there's one anecdote that I think is fascinating, which is we were on Battlestar. We had started to cultivate a following and some critical praise. We were, I think, on season three of the show. And there was this one particular editor, I don't mind giving his name because it's, a, I think, a great story. Julius Ramsey goes by Jute. He was, uh, he came out of reality. He had been an unscripted editor on a number of shows, been nominated for Emmys. Um, certainly, he wanted to get into scripted. He uh, was desperate to transition from reality to scripted. Settled for an assistant editor job on Alias in the last season. Um, assisted an editor who, you know, it's the last season of a show and it starts to run out of steam and everybody's looking for other opportunities. Found his way to the editing chair because there was no one else there and cut the like the last two episodes of Alias. Had made an impression on those producers, exec producers, said, oh, I was great. At the same time, he had called our office for months and wanted a job on Battlestar. And he had sent me his resume. And I, I said, look, I, I don't know what to tell you. My executive producers are not going to hire the guy that worked on all these reality shows. They're just not. And he was like, I want to do it. I want to do it. Alias, I've done all this. Da, 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 da. And I started sending the calls to my post super who like became friendly with this guy. He was just worn down by it. It's like, he's got a lot of charisma. He's, you know, he's really saying, you know, we speak in the right language. I really think we should give him a shot. Well, funny enough, I had an editor a few weeks after that. Um, that last conversation, who said, I'm taking a month off, I'm burned out. And we needed this editor too bad. We couldn't just say, well, then you're gone. I would just said, okay, well, let me figure this out. So we need to give one episode to somebody else. So we started looking at the usual suspects. And lo and behold, Jute Ramsey's resume popped up. And I went to the EPs and I was like, look, I think this might be the best candidate. Let's at least talk to him. So Jute came in. He said all the right things like, oh, there's a verite style to the show that reminds me of the French connection. Whatever he said, he completely like finished David Icke's sentences who said, hire him. We gave Jute one episode. He crushed it because he's, he's a really good editor. And, and then those same EPs turn around and say, can you figure out a way to keep him around? So we went to the studio. It was like, look, we want to throw him another episode this season and then bring him back season four. So we kind of jiggered some numbers and well, we could take a little from this and that. And he stayed on. And I think it was the third episode he cut of the series. It was the premiere of season four. He got nominated for an, an Emmy for best editing. So, and of course he flourished season four. Um, now smartly, this is, this is, you know, I, this also has to do with the wall that you're talking about. Frank Darabont was supposed to direct an episode season four of Battlestar. And a couple of weeks before photography was to roll, something happened with schedules or, and, and he fell out. But we learned that Frank Darabont was a huge fan of Battlestar and had a dialogue with our EPs. We then learned a couple of months later that Frank was making a show called The Walking Dead. And Jute was like, hey, Frank, I'm the Battlestar editor. I'm the Emmy-nominated Battlestar editor. So Jute got hired season one of The Walking Dead. And I think it was, I don't know if it was season two or season three, that he was like, I'll come back to edit if you let me direct. And they let him direct. 
fact. So he ended up directing, I think, two episodes of The Walking Dead before he left that program. And of course, Paul Gadd was the co-producer from season two on. So Paul and I compared notes on the, you know, the trajectory of Jute Ramsey. But, you know, really scrappy, resourceful guy that just networked the hell out of it and would find a way in. The joke that I make all the time with people, I have it in uh, articles and written form. I talk about it on the podcast when they say I want to, Marvel is always kind of the, that's the creme de la creme for people. I want to work on Marvel movies. I want to work on the Avengers or I want to work on whatever. And I always make the joke that you're never going to see the following job listing in the classifieds. Marvel seeking qualified editor (laughs) to edit the next Avengers franchise film. Right. Doesn't work that way. Have you ever put a job listing anywhere (laughs) ever? Now, it doesn't I will, work that way. I will say, and you know, Paul Gad could could confirm this or echo this this idea. Marvel Television and Marvel Studios merged in January. I was one of thirty people given a severance package and a pink slip. Like we saw it coming several months ahead. But I certainly thought a lot of us thought Marvel Studios has announced a dozen shows for Disney Plus. They need people who know how to make television. Well, as it turns out, they don't. <laughs> it turns out that their approach to making streaming content was to approach it like a feature. And they weren't interested in how the TV people make TV. And we were essentially told as much. I ended up kind of, you know, also feeling a bit on the outside. And I approached Kevin Feige, you know, after, frankly, after the holiday Christmas party, when I had a few drinks, I shot him an email and played the USC alumni reaching out to another Trojan for a few minutes of his time, mentioned what a comic book nerd I was and how I sold a huge run of Amazing Spider-Mans to help pay for my first semester of film school. And very considerately, he wrote me back and he set me up with an interview with the number three person at the company, whose name I won't mention at the moment. And a month later turned into a long phone interview where she said, what exactly did you do at Marvel? Like, how did you, you know, and what did you do on Battlestar? And after I had told her all these stories, she said, okay, you're too creative to be a post guy here at Marvel Studios, and you're way too involved as an executive to work here at Marvel Studios. It turned out that the way the product gets made there is Kevin Feige goes to color correction and mix playback and visual effects reviews. He has a few people he trusts. Um, I heard through the grapevine that the showrunner doesn't even come to the last mix playbacks. Like after the last episode of a season is locked, they're gone. So that's just how they make it. So, you know, I mean, there's really no way to find that out until you, until you, you go, you just dig deeper. And like we talked about, kind of sucks that you can't do that, but at the same time, kind of a bullet dodged because it would be a horrible fit for you. That's exactly right. They're asking you to be somebody that you're not. I mean, I I guess I would have done it for a year or two because I would, I could, then I could say I did it, but I wouldn't have been satisfied. And I probably would have made people miserable. (laughs) my wife and maybe Kevin Feige would say, why are you telling me this stuff? I don't, I don't give a shit what you think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like through a lot of this, that a, a common thread is this idea of just being honest, just being authentic to the product, being honest about here are the circumstances. Here's what it's going to take, or here's how I feel about you and working for you do with it what you will. And I think that that, that honesty and authenticity has served you very well throughout your career. I'd like to think so. Thank you. Well, this has been a tremendous pleasure. I love seeing how things work in different areas of the industry outside of the the small little dark cutting room uh, with uh, usually no windows, seeing outside uh, the, the rest of the industry and now seeing a little bit more from the studio angle as well. Is there anything to close that we have missed 
that either a producer that wants to become a better producer should learn or an editor that wants to learn how to grow their career and build better relationships with producers? Is there anything important you want to share that we've missed? Well, it's clearly about the team and the, and, and the individuals. I think it's it's really important, like you said, to be honest. You know, where, wherever possible, when, when someone's considering working on your show, as a producer to say, here's what we're expecting. Here's what I imagine the hours will be like. Here's what we think the commitment's going to be like for you. And I want that editor or that person to say, you know, I'm excited by this or here's my concern. Uh, We hired an editor on a show and after Daily started coming in, they said, oh, I'm also teaching a class at USC. And I was like, well, how is that going to work? And I was obviously put out that they hadn't disclosed this. And I said, look, I will try to work with you on this, but we are already stressed about your particular episode because the script isn't terribly strong. I've already gotten calls from a few people who think that the director isn't 100%. And sure enough, when it came time to director's cut and the editor's like, but I have to go teach. I was like, um, you know, I reached out to the showrunner and said, uh, here's the situation. And he said, well, you just have to ask the editor to choose. Are they going to teach or are they going to cut? And they chose to cut. I was honestly, I was surprised. But, um, you know, it is about the individuals. It's about finding that alchemy of people who enjoy working together and being together and contributing and participating in something I think that can be really exciting and fulfilling. So, you know, there's a little bit of chemistry and a little bit of luck involved. And from a management point of view, trying to encourage people and bring out the best that they have to offer. I'm just a big believer in setting up an environment where people are set up for success as opposed to failure. And I think that there's a lot of, let's set this up so people just barely don't fail as opposed to, yeah, but what is it going to take to actually set us up for success where we enjoy the process? Yes, there are going to be long hours, but they don't have to be every single day, all day, the whole season. And we get to make something really cool. Like let's let's get in the habit of setting everybody up for success instead of just not barely failing. That that's my philosophy anyway. So it would be great to be on that same team with you sometimes, Zach. Well, uh, the, knowing how few people there are in the industry and how many <laughs> you and I seem to have in common, that may happen sooner than we think. That'd be great. Uh, well, on that note, uh, this has been a tremendous pleasure. I really appreciate your time and your advice and your expertise. I think this is really valuable for so many people to hear. On the subject of networking. Would you be interested in allowing my listeners to reach out and connect with you if they are interested in doing so? Absolutely. My pleasure. How can they do that? They could they could email me. Uh, I think I gave you my, my LinkedIn profile. They could reach out to me through LinkedIn. Um, I can share my email address or you can share it with them if that's the most efficient way to do it. I don't know. Yeah, whatever's going to be the best for you. Why don't you put it in writing and just share that with them? I'm totally fine. And they should probably mention you or your podcast, which by the way, feels like an... Uh, a great service. So thank you for providing these. Sure. I, I appreciate that. I, I talk about networking and building relationships a great deal. So I can assure you anybody that is going to see your information that I'm going to put in the show notes, I'm going to warn them. They better go through all of my references and all of my resources for writing really compelling outreach messages that provide value to the recipient. Do not reach out to Paul and say, hey, Paul, here's my resume. Would you consider <laughs> right. me and refer me for jobs? Don't do it. I promise you're only going to get good outreach coming from this audience. Excellent. That, that, that sounds awesome. And, and honestly, you know, if I land a show in March or May, like I've had some nibbles, but nothing quite firm yet. Um, I don't have a team. Like I, you know, I'm going to be looking for a post super post coordinator, post PA editors, assistant editors. Like, you know, I haven't gotten serious about 
eating the bushes and really looking for that right team. So this could work out for some of your listeners as well. Well, for anybody listening, you want to connect to Paul, go through any of my resources to write great outreach, connect with them, and you never know what might happen. Indeed. That's what this is all about. So Paul, once again, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.